Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Live from the BBC, The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientist with me, Dr Chris, and with Dr Kat. Hello, good evening. Tonight, for Valentine's Day, the science of seduction, Cupid's chemistry. We'll be finding out how you can push up your pulling power on the dance floor because here to join us is pheromone expert and sense of smell expert from the University of Bristol, Peter Brennan. Hello. And we're also going to be joined this evening by, also from the University of Bristol, in fact, Peter Barham, who's a physicist, but he's also an expert on how things taste. In other words, molecular gastronomy, why different combinations of foods taste the way they do. And in fact, we'll be finding out from him why toothpaste and orange juice is a disgusting combination. Not that you'd actually be advised to eat it, but why is it that when you do have those things, they do taste so disgusting? We'll also be catching up with how scientists at the Monell Chemical Senses Centre in Philadelphia, US, are, help, are going to make life a smell of a lot better if you live downwind of a pig farm, because they've found a way of improving the odour of manure. That's Charles Wasocki, and he's coming up shortly. If you want to have a go at our quiz tonight, Science Fact or Science Fiction, we have to give away 20 quids worth of vouchers from the Wiggly Wigglers. And all you have to do is give us a call, 08459 25 2000, or email me, chris, at nakedscientist.com. And throughout tonight's programme, if you have any questions on anything science, just phone them in right now. And also coming up tonight, we have a little bit of news for you. Chris will be revealing why the price of meteorites is set to skyrocket. And we'll be getting down and dirty on the dance floor and finding out about the science of dancing. Is there a scientific way to make your dancing sexy? And are people genetically bred to be good dancers? I'm intrigued to find out. Um, if you think that there's a genetic link, do you come from a family of dancers? If you've got any questions about science, seduction, sex drugs rock and roll get phoning in 08459 252000 and if doing a bit of experimentation is your bag then what you need to grab tonight is some corn flour and some water we'll be joining Derek and Dave our kitchen science po posse at uh, Billericay school in Essex just coming up in the next five minutes or so if you want to give us a call 08459 252000 anything science but with a bent towards Valentine's Day because of course it is coming up on Tuesday the Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Now, the latest fashion must-have, it appears, is a meteorite, because it looks like worldwide prices for meteorites have gone straight through the roof, and they're actually commanding a higher cost than the equivalent weight of gold. In fact, 500 times the weight of uh, gold. Um, so you could buy a meteorite-sized lump of gold for 500 times less than some meteorites. Not all meteorites, so if you have got a meteorite in your collection, don't go rushing out trying to flog it now, because it's only certain meteorites that are that valuable. In particular, it's the ones which are come from Mars. We were hearing just a couple of weeks ago how when something 
slams into the surface of Mars. Sometimes it ejects bits of Martian rock which go out into space. They loiter there for a few million years and then they get hoovered up by Earth's gravity. And in fact, one uh, particular meteorite which was found in Antarctica... Uh, was the one which we thought we'd found fossils of bacteria in. No one really knows about that yet, but that one landed here, and that one's very, very valuable. So if you do have a meteorite in your collection, then perhaps it uh, might be worth taking it off to, uh, to get it looked at. But the problem is that the price has now become so high that scientists are getting priced out of the market because meteorites are very valuable. They can tell us a lot about where our, our own planet came from, how our solar system formed, and a lot about other planets if we've got bits of other planets loitering here on Earth. The problem is that with them commanding such a high price, you just can't get them because people are putting them on their bookshelves rather than in scientific laboratories. So there's a group uh, led by Dante Loretta at the University of Arizona. And what they've done is to form something called the Southwest Meteorite Centre. And the aim of the game here is that they've got a war chest of $200,000 and they're going to be trying to buy up as many meteorites as they can over time in order to preserve important specimens and then keep them in particularly good pristine conditions for a long time so that they can make them available to scientists when they need them. So that's the Dante Loretta University of Arizona Southwest Meteorite Centre. And they do say, actually, that if you do have a meteorite and you want them to look at it, that in return for a few scrapings for their collection off the side, then they'll give you a breakdown and an analysis of what it is. That gives the whole new meaning to getting a rock on Valentine's Day, doesn't it? Um, We've uh, had lots of emails in from people all over the world who are listening to the show on podcasts. So hello to all the listeners everywhere who get this show um, from www.nakedscientist.com. And we've just had an email in that says um, it's from Steve Swope, who is Professor of Biology at Williams College in America. And he says, hi, Chris and the gang. Thanks for the show. And he wanted to say how impressed he is with the good manners of our listening audience, uh, particularly the children. And when people say, would you like to have a go at the quiz, the uh, English children, we all say, yes, please. Instead of in America, where apparently the answer is just whatever. So uh, kudos to all our English kids out there. And if you want to go on our quiz or if you want to uh, ask us any questions tonight, get calling in yourselves 08459 252000 and the first kid to say whatever gets cut off. (laughs) I've got an email here from Kane actually who says uh, Hi Chris, I'm I'm in New Zealand just in case you didn't know where that is, it's actually beside Australia. Thanks Kane, I'd always wondered I've only been there once. Uh, Anyway, he says I've been downloading your podcast and I have to admit I absolutely love your show, what a pity it's only on once a week and uh, not far from Kane in the country next door Australia, um, Simon Bender's in Sydney in Oz and he says wonderful, just discovered your website via the Science Show in Australia on the ABC, a feast to be enjoyed and on. I download your MP3s Well thank you very much to those guys. If you'd like to tell us where you're listening to The Naked Scientist, phone number um, 08459 25 If you are calling internationally, it's 441223 then you add 25 on the end. And you can always email me, of course, chris at nakedscientist.com. Now, we are talking tonight about the science of seduction and how better to go and pull someone than on the dance floor. It's all in the dance, though, it appears, because William Brown from Rutgers University in New Jersey has been actually trying to dissect away the ingredients of what makes someone the fittest dancer on the dance floor. We found the quality of an individual's dance is related to their bodily symmetry, and this effect is much stronger in men than it is in women. How did you actually make these measurements? What did you do? Well, we used digital calipers, which is quite standard in terms of measuring very small deviations from perfect symmetry in bilateral traits like our ears, our ankles, and our knees. We did this twice over two periods of time, um, 1996 and 2002, and this is to control for any type of error, measurement error, or compensatory growth changes in symmetry over time. So we selected individuals that were symmetrical at both time periods and then also individuals that were asymmetrical across both time periods. 
Then we brought them into the laboratory in Jamaica and had them dance to a very popular song in their culture in Jamaica. Disco lights added? We didn't have the disco lights. But what we did have was eight motion capture cameras, high-speed cameras, that emitted infrared beams to 41 reflectors on each dancer's body. So this is, you can, you can then map out exactly what moves they're making? We can mathematically map out all the movements that they were making. And we can capture the movement and separate it from the actual person. And the reason that we wanted to do that, one problem, if we have this hypothesis that your mate quality or your symmetry is related to your dance quality, how do we assess dance quality? which can be challenging because maybe people's assessments of dance quality could be biased by how you look. And what jewellery you've got on. What jewellery you've got on. Sunglasses, other bling. Your facial attractiveness, your bling, whatever it may be. So by using motion capture high-speed cameras, we could separate that from the dancer and through computers put that onto an actual standardized animated figure, a cartoon figure, so to speak, and present those figures to a group of perceivers. And the people you asked to, to judge and give sort of marks out of ten, they're a mixture of men and women? These are a mixture of men and women from the same population in Jamaica. What was the finding? The first finding was that they preferred the dances by symmetrical males more so than asymmetrical males. And where are you going to go next with this? Are you going to test different types of music, do you think? We'd like to test different types of music and perhaps different cultures to see how much we can generalise this effect. But one of the other things we'd like to do is to see exactly what specific movements are associated with symmetry. And since we've mathematically captured the movements of motion capture, we can analyze specific, for example, trunk movements is something that I'm analyzing right now. We also want to do follow-up studies over time to see whether or not danceability in any way correlates with uh, reproductive fitness or success. It'd also be quite interesting to try and teach the ingredients, if you can dissect them out of a good dance, to someone who starts off as a really poor dancer. Well, yes, it would, and to be honest, when I do actually look at the mathematical movements of the dances in Jamaica, I do spend some time trying to imitate them and see whether or not I can actually improve my own danceability. I must admit, though, especially the trunk movements are very difficult to imitate. Cooking up the ingredients of a good dance, William Brown from Rutgers University in New Jersey. Well, I reckon if he's trying to imitate those dancers, he's just on a loser because um, scientists at the Hebrew University have found that dancers are actually genetically different and your ability to dance might be in your genes. So Professor Richard Epstein and his researchers, they've actually been studying certain genes in dancers and comparing them to people who don't dance so well, you know, your two left-footers out there. Um, Because previously people have found that musicians, athletes, uh, these kind of people have genetic differences. And they found that these two genes called, uh, one's the serotonin transporter and one's uh, arginine vasopressin receptor 1A, they're involved in the brain and uh, in sort of spiritual experience in the brain. And they find that people who are good at dancing have variations in these genes. And uh, this correlates with their people's ability to dance. And so there's actually, they've identified a type who is the dancing type. And these people have a a heightened sense of communication. Often they have a spiritual, a symbolic and ceremonial nature. Sure, that's um, not just the ecstasy they've taken. Well, maybe not. (laughs) And uh, a very sort of strong spiritual personality. So do you know any dancers and uh, are they like that? I think this is absolutely fascinating because there are people with two left feet out there. I've just started dance classes and... (laughs) No no connection there. The men out there, (laughs) they shouldn't be allowed out, I don't think. At least without steel shin pads for me. Are you a good dancer then? I'm a brilliant dancer because I'm obviously a very communicative person.
You're listening to The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Kat. We're here live on BBC Local Radio around the Eastern Counties, taking your science questions on anything to do with science, technology and medicine tonight between now and 7 o'clock. If you have a question for us, 08459 25 2000 is our phone number, or you can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. Now, of course, if you do want to send us in a question, we are talking tonight about the science of seduction. We're talking about Cupid's chemistry. It's Valentine's Day this week. Why are we attracted to each other? And why is it that when two women live together, very often their periods end up in synchrony? How is that achieved? What's the chemistry behind it? We'll also be finding out why certain combinations of foods taste nice together and others don't. We'll be talking to Peter Barham from Bristol University about that very, very shortly. But if you're in an experimental mood this evening, then let's join Derek and Dave who are in Billericay in Essex, finding out the basis to the observations of corn flour and water. Why does it thicken your gravy? Hello there and welcome to Billericay School and uh, Dave and I have come here to do some more kitchen science and to give you some explanations of stuff that you might have seen before. So tell us more Dave, what is it we're doing today? We're going to be looking at how corn flour and cold water actually works. Okay, so this is probably something you might have seen at home, mixing corn flour and water, and yet we're going to be trying to explain exactly how that works, what's really happening there. With us as well are um, two Year 13 students from uh, Billericay School. Could you guys just introduce yourselves quickly? I'm Michael. I'm Chris. Excellent, thank you very much. And so you guys do science, presumably. Can I just find out what kind of scientist you are? I've done physics, biology and chemistry. Oh, the hardcore. Okay, and yourself? Just biology and chemistry. Okay, well, that's still very impressive, so I'm sure you've got some ideas about what's going on here. Now, firstly, um, before we actually came to Billericay School here, we got Chris and Michael to make up a mixture of a load of uh, corn flour and water, and it's here in front of us in, in a plastic basin. And so I'd like to ask you guys, actually, you do seem to be kind of experts, you know, didn't have much trouble making this up. So, Michael, firstly, how did you do it? Well, you get some corn flour in a suitable basin, and then you add tap water until it becomes a nice slime, and it will drip through your fingers, and, yeah, it's just a nice solid consistency. Okay, and so what are the kind of strange properties, then, Chris, about this stuff? I mean, what's weird about it? Well, we found if you leave it alone and don't, like, mould it in your hands, it's a liquid, but as soon as you apply any pressure to it, it turns into a solid. Excellent. Okay, and this is probably something you might well have seen at home. You know, it's this kind of strange stuff that if you just let it flow through your fingers, then, yeah, it does just kind of drip, drip through your fingers. But apply force and it does stay as a solid. So, guys, have you got any ideas why this happens? Michael, firstly. Well, if it's a slow force, the molecules have a chance to slide over each other and it changes shape. However, if the force is all at once, then um, the molecules just can't fit past each other and um, it, it won't move. It will stay like it is. It might crack, but that's about it. Okay, and what about yourself, Chris? Does that sound good? Yeah, pretty much. If uh, there's no like strong impact, the molecules can just like slip and slide over each other, and it becomes li- like a liquid consistency. But as soon as you like hit it and provide a big impact, those molecules just can't do that. They just stay in the same place. Excellent. Well, let's chat about that then. Dave's here, of course, to kind of give us a bit of an explanation. I think that sounds quite reasonable. But what do you say, Dave? It's pretty close. To what's happening? Yeah, cornflour is great stuff. It's actually called a shear thickening liquid. If you just leave it, it'll just flow gently as a, as a liquid. But if you start hitting it, it goes really hard. In fact, you can roll it up into a ball and you can make the ball bounce <laughs> and shatter and things like that. So um, Michael and Chris are really close to what's happening, but it's not actually to do with the molecules. If you think about it, cornflour is a powder, and powders are made out of lots of little lumps, actually little starch grains. And here I have a picture which an old girlfriend of mine took a few years ago. Lovely, and we're going to explain this in full detail as well, not the girlfriend, the picture. So then... This picture, Michael, could you just give us a quick description? What, what does it look like, the picture? It is cornflour under a microscope with lots of starch grains packed closely together. Yeah, what's kind of the scale on this? How big is a starch grain, Dave? It's less than a thousandth of a millimetre across. And so what does this picture tell us then? We've got basically a lot of these starch grains, yeah, as Michael said, 
packed pretty closely together, but what can we tell? Basically, there are lots of irregular-shaped grains, okay? And normally they're surrounded by water, and this water will lubricate them. Also, because they're very small, Brownian motion will cause them to vibrate. Basically, all the water molecules are moving around because they're warm. They'll bash into them and make them wobble around. So this sounds like, at that point, it's quite fluid then. Yeah, it'll act a bit like a fluid, and all the particles can just kind of wriggle past each other slowly, and it will just flow. Okay, so that's when you're not applying a force, but then with a force... Okay, if you imagine squashing all these particles together, where two particles are almost touching, you'll squeeze the water apart from them, and they'll jam together. So instead of having gaps with lubricant in between, now all of these particles will jam together and it will go solid. And so when you hit it, it goes hard. Okay, so I guess you guys are on the right track, but um, I guess we're talking more about the particles having that sort of effect than the real molecules. So does that make sense, Chris? Yeah, definitely. So is that like the same effect when you run over wet sand, it's like solid, but if you stand still, you kind of sink into it? Okay, wet sand almost sort of works the other way around. Because the particles are really big, they're heavy, so just their own weight will squash all the water from between them and jam them together. In cornflour, all the particles are wriggling around just because it's warm, and they're quite light, so their own weight won't squeeze the water out. So sand, when it's standing there, is just like cornflour when you're squeezing it. But if you shake the sand, it's like the cornflour when it's just standing still, and the sand will start to flow, and the sand will actually fluidize, which is why if you stand on a beach and bounce up and down on your feet, you can sink into sand. It's also a great big problem in earthquakes, because if you've got a load of wet soil and sandy stuff, and there's a big earthquake, it all gets shaken, and the whole thing turns into a fluid. And there have been great big office blocks which have just sank into this fluid and fallen over. So does that mean then the key difference really between sand and water and cornflour and water is just that the weight of the particles, essentially sand particles, are heavier and just behave differently? Yeah, the sand particles are so much heavier that they behave entirely differently. And basically in the opposite way? It's almost in the opposite way, yes. Okay, good stuff. Well, thanks very much, Chris and Michael. Um, does that all make sense, Michael? Sounds great to me, yeah. Okay, good. And yourself, Chris? Yep, definitely. Okay, well, we're delighted then to have you help us make up the uh, cornflour and so on, and hopefully you'll be doing some more of that uh, soon. Although the amount of cornflour that we had here, I'm not sure you'll have that at home, but maybe we'll let them take away a sackful or something. How about it? <laughs> yeah, I can have what they've made here. Yeah, yeah. We, we have large quantities, so anyone want any, come see us. Great. Okay, uh, that's all from the Billericay School, so back to the studio, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Derek and Dave, who are there in Billericay finding out about the science of cornflour. Very much coming uh, on the way, we have Dave in Suffolk who wants to know about microwaves and metal. We'll be going to him shortly. If you have a question for us on tonight's programme, The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris, that's me, and Dr Cat, we're here with you until 7, 08459 25 2000, or you can email me, chris, at nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. Dave. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. What would you like to know about? Um, well, first of all, can I just tell you how annoyed you've made me? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, my meteorite, um, what I found when I was a kid. Oh, tell us about that first. Well, that, that weighed about a quarter of a pound. Yeah. Um, which is quite heavy compared to mm. uh, uh, what you just said about the value of them. Yeah. And my geography teacher nicked off me. Oh. Um, I'm going to track him. What a down. swine! I'm going to track him down. He obviously had a. He obviously knew what he was up to, didn't he? Well, yeah, I'm going to track him down. Do, do you know? I can describe it down to every detail. How do you know it was a meteorite? Um, well, um, it it it, um, it was all brown on the outside, um, and it had actually cracked when it hit. When it obviously hit something, when it hit the earth, or didn't it? it must have hit something hard or what it done. I found it in the field, and the inside, the inside was like a tiny little circle in the middle. It was made out of metal. It was actually made out of metal. Ah, yes, that's right, because there are some very metal-rich, in fact, some of them that yeah. turn up are almost pure stainless steel, as well, it were. Well, it, well, it looked like, like um, it did look like 
steel, look, look like steel. It was mm. really heavy, and it had a tiny little like round centre, and it had all lines going up like um, I can't explain it. Ran to the ran to the edges like this like is the eye, heating effect. You know, like an eye. Where did you find it, Dave? In a field near Felixstowe. Fantastic. Um, yeah, well, it's not fantastic. <laughs> well, what you fa- well what you held there was something which actually dates from the birth of our own solar system. So it was certainly older than the Earth, probably about four and a half billion years old. At a rough yeah, estimate. Do you reckon I can claim it back so I can describe it down to the? Oh, well, you can try, but I'd go and get that geography teacher and say, I want my meteorite back. Yeah. Well, now, what was your other question? Probably dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd like him dead anyway, wouldn't you? What was your question, Dave? Um, mi- microwaves. I can't understand why, when you put something metal in a yeah. microwave, um, you get a firework display or whatever. <laughs> right. And yet the inside of the microwave is made out of metal. Sure. Um, so uh, why, don't, uh, why don't the insides of the microwave go mad. Okay, well uh, microwaves are essentially the same as radio waves or in fact light waves. They're a form of light, the same stuff that comes to earth from the sun and they establish what's called a standing wave. Now in other words if you wiggle a piece of rope which is fixed at one end and in your hand at the other end you'll see it forms a sort of a loop, a sort of sine wave doesn't it? And if you wiggle it fast enough you get an almost static picture on on the rope of of a wiggly wave. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah I do, yeah. Right. The microwave creates something like that inside the microwave. And that wave, the wavelength, the peak-to-peak length, is about 12 centimetres in, in the microwave. And that's why you need a turntable, because at the tips of the waves, that's where the energy is greatest. And at the bottom of the waves, uh, in the middle of the waves, sorry, that's where the energy is less. So if you have a turntable, it moves the food through the hot spots on the wave and makes sure you get even heating. Right. So that's bouncing backwards and forwards across between the two sides of the microwave. But then, if you put something metallic in, sometimes you get, as you say, a beautiful fireworks display. And in fact, I wouldn't advise you to do it, but if you put a normal bulb that you would screw into your ceiling in the microwave, it will light up. Because the microwaves actually are essentially an electromagnetic wave. So if you put something metallic in the microwave, the electromagnetic wave tries to make electricity in the metal. Okay, and that's why a light bulb will light up. Well, is it safe to do that? Don't do I, it. I wouldn't at home, advise kids. you to do it, but it will work. Okay. I, I like playing with microwaves. <laughs> right. Well, you may not have a microwave to show for it afterwards, but it will work. Well, if you left a microwave on long enough and yes. put in it, yeah, would it would it eventually? Probably not. Itself? No, probably not. Oh. And uh, the reason for that, when you put something metallic in the microwave, in other words, it tries to make electricity in the metal. Right. Now, if the metal that you put in is a good conductor. Okay. Yeah. Then all you do is make electricity in the metal, and the electricity flows around the metal in a big loop, and you get essentially a short circuit, so it gets hot. Like, but invi- it, like invisible lightning sort of thing. N- well, it doesn't make any lightning because it's a good conductor, so you yeah. get lots of electricity flowing around in the thing, but it doesn't actually spark anywhere. The reason you get a spark is if you put something which is very, very thin and a bad conductor, and what that does is creates a lot of charge in one place and a lot of charge in another place, and because it's not a very good conductor, to equalise out the two charge differences, the air carries the electricity as a visible spark between the two areas where you've got a lot of charge and not a lot of charge. And that's where you get a spark. So if you put a spoon in a cup, it won't do anything. If If you put a cup of water or something in a microwave with a spoon inside it, it will not cause a problem. You can put your Chinese takeaway foil dish in a microwave and microwave it and it will not do anything because it's a very good conductor, it's aluminium. But if you put your mum's best tea set, which has got gold leaf around the edging, (laughs) that that will create the world's biggest fireworks display. Because the resistance of the metal is quite high, it's not a good conductor, so you get a lot of energy in one place, a lot of energy in the other, and then zap, 
As soon as you get a big enough charge, you get a lightning bolt, and that's exactly what you were seeing. That stripped the gold off. <laughs> yeah, did your yes. mum go off like fireworks yeah, as well? Yeah, she did. Well, no, it was, it, um, she's passed away. She's, uh, <laughs> there was a fireworks display in the microwave, and then there was a fireworks display in the kitchen afterwards. <laughs> do you want to have a quick quiz, Dave? Yeah, I'll have a quick go. Okay, litmus paper dipped into acid turns red. Do you think that's fact or fiction? Um, I'll say, I'll say, um, fiction. Oh no, litmus paper is actually um, pigmented with something from lichen and it changes colour according to acidity or alkalinity. Acids make it red and I think alkalis make it blue, don't they Chris? They certainly do. Next question Dave. A cone is the object with the largest volume to surface area ratio. Is that science fact or science fiction? Fact. Bad luck. No, um, the actual answer is a sphere. So something like Earth is a solid with the greatest volume to surface area ratio. Bad luck. Better luck next time, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) It was a really interesting question, though. Thanks for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Bye. And uh, don't uh, put uh, any light bulbs in your microwave if you can help it, please. Uh, If you do, you do so at your own risk and blow up your kitchen. It's The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Kat. We're here live with you until seven. We're talking anything science. 08459 25 2000 is the phone number, or you can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. As I say, we're talking this evening general science, but also talking about the science of seduction, smell and taste. So if you have some questions about that, they'll be very welcome. Peter Brennan will be joining us shortly to talk about that, and Peter Barham's on on the line from Bristol. He'll be joining us shortly as well. Uh, we just had a really quick email in from Robert who says, of course the ability to dance is in your jeans, i.e. jeans, your trousers. Your they're, 501s. They're called your legs. Uh, so brilliant. Thanks very much for that, Robert. Anyway, last week we heard the end of David Lemberg's um, series for our podcast picks, which was fascinating. And Petro's been scouring the web to find more podcast picks for us. And he's now got one from Bill Palin, who publishes the National Institutes of Health podcast every week. And this one is about the discovery of an antidepressant protein in the mouse brain. A protein that seems to be pivotal in lifting depression has been discovered by a Nobel laureate researcher funded by the National Institute of Mental Health. Brain cells communicate with each other by secreting messengers, such as serotonin, which bind to receptors located on the surface of receiving cells. Medications commonly prescribed for depression compensate for a reduction in serotonin signaling by boosting levels and binding of serotonin. Dr. Paul Greengard reports that mice deficient in a protein called P11 display depression-like behaviors, while those with sufficient quantities behave as if they had been treated with antidepressants. Dr. Thomas Insel, director of NIMH. This new paper takes us into entirely new territory. This isn't about how much serotonin. It's not about how many receptors. It's about what happens within the cell after serotonin binds to its receptor. The finding led researchers to suspect that P11 levels might be directly involved in the development of depression, anxiety, and similar psychiatric illnesses thought to involve faulty serotonin receptors. Dr. Insel explained the significance. Now we've got a whole new candidate to ask, is there something amiss with P11? Is there a mutation? Is there too much, too little? Is it not linking correctly to the membrane? But we do know for the first time that we've got a whole set of players here that we previously overlooked. Dr. Insel said further study is warranted. From the National Institutes of Health, I'm Bill Schmalfeld in Bethesda, Maryland. 
And that was our podcast pick, which was sent in by Bill Palin. If you want to hear more stuff like that, then you can go and check out the podcast at nihpodcast.blogspot.com. And you're listening to us at The Naked Scientists on the BBC all over the eastern counties and on our podcast across the world. If you want to phone in any questions, do you want to know about the science of seduction or do you want any tips for Valentine's Day, get calling in now 08459 25 2000. And if you have a science podcast that you'd like to send us, a minute and a half as an MP3, just email it to me, chris at nakedscientist.com. Anything interesting to do with anything sciencey, just send it to me now, chris at nakedscientist.com, and you might get it broadcast on The Naked Scientist. Fancy listening to The Naked Scientist in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. The Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris and Dr. Cat, we're here with you until seven. If you have a science question about anything to do with Valentine's Day, 08459 25 2000, up for grabs this week, we have... £20 worth of vouchers from the Wiggly Wigglers, which will get your garden growing like there's no tomorrow. Now, joining us this evening in the studio, Dr Peter Brennan from Bristol. Good evening, Peter. Hello. Uh, Peter's an expert on how you smell. Uh, I don't mean that in a nasty way. It's literally how does your nose work. So, Peter, take us through it. First of all, what actually is a smell? So a smell is a collection of molecules, and something like fresh coffee might have many hundred different molecules that make up that smell. And so what the brain has to do is basically identify that specific combination of molecules which uh, contribute to coffee odour and um, discriminate it, distinguish it from all of that complex combination of molecules which is strawberry odour and all the other different odours that we can recognise. OK, so these molecules are drifting around in the air and they go up your nose. Yes. What happens then? So they go up the nose and they dissolve in the mucus that's in your nose and then they bind to receptor proteins. So these are molecules which have some sort of complementary site that the odour molecules fit into. It's like a docking station. Yeah, that's right. And um, so what happens then is they activate that cell in the nose, which then depolarizes, uh, it changes its electrical potential, and that signal is then sent down um, a long process of the cell to the brain and where it triggers changes in other cells in the brain. So do you have a different receptor up your nose for every different sort of smell molecule? I mean, are some people missing certain smells? That's a really good question. Um, there are lots of these different receptors. Humans have about 350 different types of functional receptor. But that doesn't mean that humans can only smell 300 diff- uh, 350 different types of molecule because these molecules will all bind... Uh, the receptors will all bind to a range of different molecules. And so what the brain has to do is to look across the whole population of these receptors and identify the pattern of I guess it's a bit activity. like light, isn't it? Because the screen in front of me shows a range of colours, but it's actually making those colours from three, red, green and blue. But I'm not restricted to just seeing red, green or blue. Depending on how much of each of those is present, I see a different colour. That's right, yes. If the brain was to look at the signal from any one receptor type, it wouldn't know which of five or six molecules was out there. But by looking across a whole... Um, population of these receptors, then it can pick up this pattern. How do humans compare in in the grand scheme of smellers in the world? I mean, we all hear about dogs' amazing ability. Where are we on the scale? uh, Quite poor, really. There are animals that really don't have a sense of smell, like whales, for instance, have lost their sense of smell. Um, But things like dogs and mice have much greater abilities um, to both detect really faint smells and also to distinguish lots of fine uh, differences 
in the sense of smell that we would just think of those odours as smelling the same. And can you get humans that are super smellers? Do do you get people who have very special smelling ability? Um, That's a good question. Uh, People who maybe have lost the use of other senses, um, it's well known that other senses, such as if someone's blind, maybe their hearing can be particularly acute and maybe their sense of smell can be particularly acute. Um, As far as people with the full range of sensory abilities, then uh, certainly people who have um, trained, say, as perfumers or wine tasters or tea tasters, then they have much greater ability certainly to talk about smells and to put labels on them. Is it because those people have spent their life doing that and they've got better at doing it, or is it that they went into those jobs because they had such a superior sense of smell or taste? That's a good question, and I don't really know the answer. Um, It could work either way. Certainly, learning and memory is very important for actually um, distinguishing smells and the way the whole of the smell sense works. An intriguing thing, though, is that smell seems to be very, very powerfully linked to memory, doesn't it? So one whiff of one particular odour, perhaps it's coffee, as you mentioned earlier, Peter, sets off a whole train of thoughts. Why is that? Yes, well, um, smell is quite an ancient sense. Um, It's been around for many, many millions of years. And the big brains that we've got at the moment, uh, most of that cortical area actually developed from areas of more primitive brains which actually were devoted to the sense of smell. And so the sense of smell is actually quite primitive in brain terms and it feeds into lots of the basic emotional areas much more directly than some of our other senses such as hearing or vision. But it's also one of the most underrated of our senses. If I think if you do a survey of people and say, if you had to sacrifice one of your special senses, you have vision, hearing, taste, smell, which one would you give up? And an enormous number of people say, oh, well, I don't think I use my nose terribly much. I wouldn't mind losing my sense of smell. But they don't realise actually how important it is. That's right. But a lot of people do lose their sense of smell for long periods of time when they have a cold or when they have allergies to particular things. Their nose uh, epithelium... uh, the membranes there can swell up and basically block the air flowing through it and they lose their sense of smell. And what you all notice is that their sense of taste will also be diminished. Is that true of smokers as well? Because I heard smokers lose their sense of smell. It's certainly diminished in smokers, um, but normally they wouldn't lose it altogether. But it'd just become numbed a bit. It would become numbed a bit, yeah. So let's talk... It is Valentine's Day, and we did say we were going to talk about the science of seduction. So let's move on to another family of molecules, pheromones. Uh, These are of dubious significance in humans, aren't they? Um, There's sort of more and more evidence which is accumulating at a a low level that humans are producing chemicals which can have an effect on other humans, either in terms of their reproductive state and their menstrual cycle or maybe in terms of their behavioural mood. Um, It's quite difficult to actually quantify the effect because it's normally quite a subtle effect. And the thing is, whether or not it plays much of a role in today's society is very much open to question. Do you know why it is that these women who, uh, when they end up living together, um, end up with their menstrual cycles synchronising? Do you have any feel for why that happens? Do we know what the molecule is that's driving that? Um, There are some molecules which um, Martha McClintock who's a researcher in the States, has found in the underarm secretions of women, which can have an effect on the menstrual cycle length of other women. Um, And so if she takes these odours from under the arm uh, just before ovulation, then they can shorten the length of uh, the menstrual cycles of other women. And if these odours 
are taken from the under the arm after ovulation, then they tend to lengthen the cycles, and this seems to act to coordinate the cycles. Well, one quick question then. That's very nice, but what's the point of it? Well, um, you can make up all sorts of stories, but no one really knows, and um, I don't have any great idea as to why this might be important now. Well, one thing which is important is if you have to live downstream of a pig farm and you're subjected to incredibly horrible smells on a regular basis, well, now things could be getting a smell of a lot better for you if you are in that case, because Charles Wysocki, who joins us now from the States in the Menel Chemical Sciences Centre, has been working on this. Good evening, Charles. Good evening to you. Thank you for joining us. Tell us about your work. You're welcome. Uh, over the past few years, we've been focusing on agricultural practices uh, in the state of Pennsylvania in the States here, uh, focusing on the abilities to reduce the impact of odors that are associated with agricultural practices. Uh, notable among them is pig farming, uh, mushroom composting, uh, dairy cattle, and chickens. And, and what we've found, and uh, now uh, the U.S. Uh, Patent Office is, is awarding a patent on, on our findings, is that by using a combination of techniques, uh, using carbon, for example, crushed up charcoal, uh, plus the introduction of pleasant smelling odors, yeah. uh, we were able to reduce the impact of these nasty smelling agricultural odors on people who live downwind. How do you actually get the reduction in the experience of the smell? I understand that obviously the, the charcoal will mop up some of the nasty smell molecules, but how does actually your other pleasant odour down-tune the nose so it learns to ignore the smell of the manure? We use uh, specially built molecules that compete for the receptor sites that Peter spoke about. Uh, these specially built molecules are pleasant smelling, uh, and, and they uh, activate some of those receptor proteins that would provide the pleasant smelling uh, experience for the people. Yeah. But they also compete for the receptor sites that would be occupied by the nasty smelling. So you're switching off the nasty smell on one hand, but then you're switching on a nice smell experience yes. on the other hand Absolutely. with the same molecule. Yes. That's very clever. Do you think actually you could uh, take that into the home or to the nearest sewage works, for example, and mask all kinds of nasty odours? We actually started this uh, many, many years ago looking at underarm, underarm odour. <laughs> very good, yeah. That, uh, that proved to be successful there. Uh, we have attempted it with uh, home air fresheners, and it seems to be working as well there. Uh, it, unfortunately, we need to know exactly what the nasty-smelling odors are, so it takes a lot of analytical chemistry. Yes, how do you home in on what they are? Uh, by combining uh, expertise in chemistry with expertise in sensory perception. So we have to make use of the human nose, as well as the information that comes out of all these analytical instruments. So you make up a molecule and try it, see what it smells like, does this smell close to the smell of manure, and then tweak it a bit, make another one, see if that one smells any better, for example. Uh, in part, what we do is identify the nasty-smelling odorants that are in the manures or the slurries, right. and that's where the chemistry comes in, and then we make a molecule based on that identification. The molecule that we make is pleasant smelling. And from there it's just a case of trial and error to see if it's able to compete on yeah. equal terms with the manure. Yeah. How much of this stuff do you actually have to add to a big bucket of pig swill to, to knock out the effect? Is it actually effective? Can you achieve what you set out to do or is it just um, pie in the sky, a nice idea that's yet to be actually realised? 
Well, we don't have a product yet that we can market. That's not our goal. We do the basic research, and we leave it to others to develop it. But we, what we have found is that anywhere from 0.1 to 1% of the total uh, is sufficient. So it, it could actually be realistic and cost-effective for farmers to do this? That's what we're thinking, yes. And I bet their neighbours are rubbing their hands together thinking, yes, please. <laughs> yes. Uh, the only problem with it is it still smells. It'll smell much nicer but there's still a pleasant, uh, it's a pleasant odour in the air. Charles, thanks very much. You're welcome. Charles Wasaki from the Minnell Chemical Sciences Institute in the US, joining us there to tell us how life could be a smell of a lot better for people who live downstream of a pig farm. Laying the facts bare, the Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists on the BBC in the Eastern Counties. If you've got any calls for our guests tonight, if you want to know about the science of smell, pick up any tips to seduce your lover with the smell of your armpits, get calling in now, 08459 252000. And speaking of smell and the long-running battle of me and my smelly feet and Chris, we've had an email in from Dylan Martin in Seattle, and he says that he really enjoys that many of our guests are women, and he's really glad that The Naked Scientists, some of us, are women. Uh, little girls need to see that women do science. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't help much when the message is women can be scientists, but they'll be teased about their smelly feet every week. So he says, Chris, be nicer to Kat. Give her a compliment. Show the little girls out there that women in science are cool. Science is cool, girls. Well, I'd like to point out, Kat, that you actually uh, said I was fat a few weeks ago. And um, <laughs> this is the, Peter. Peter, am I fat? No. No, <laughs> thank you. Right. Um, thank you, Peter. Right, I will read you this email that you have triggered, which is from Leonard Katz, who's a professor from the University of Connecticut. And he says, just a note to say I'm a regular listener to the Naked Scientist podcast. I'd like to hear, I, I would like to hear more language-related material on speaking, language and cognition, etc. So maybe that's an idea for a future show. But he says, I just had a look at the pictures on the, of the programme's presenters on your website, hoping to resolve the question of whether Chris has a beer gut or not in order to flesh out my mental radio image of him. Uh, Chris's picture shows him to be a young chap, thank you. I myself am close to retirement, but this is a headshot, so there's no resolution to the beer belly issue. Thank you for the efforts of the entire group of presenters and production people, Len Katz. Yes, Thank Chris, you, Kat, for that. Chris has no beer belly. Anyway, talking about smells, Valentine's Day, seduction, we're going to go and chat to Pete Barham at the University of Bristol, who's going to tell us all about molecular gastronomy. So, Pete, what is the best thing to serve for dinner on Valentine's Day? Goodness me, that's a terribly difficult question. The best thing to serve dinner on Valentine's Day is whatever your partner likes the most. Aha, <laughs> I so think. what would make it taste good? What makes things taste good to people? It's largely a matter of individual experiences. We all have these senses in our noses and our mouths that tell us what we like. And as you've already noted, flavour and taste is so strongly related to memory. So things we like tend to be things which are associated with really good memories. So something that happened in our childhood that we really liked or enjoyed will tend to give us something that we like the more. It's not always as simple as that, but that's a basic idea, I think. Let's just get into the nuts and bolts of actually how taste works, if that's okay, Pete. First of all, when I put something in my mouth, what's actually happening at a neurological level for me to be able to taste it? Oh dear, that's a, that's a question no one knows the answer to. Uh, the first problem is that we've, we all think that taste... Well, where do you think you taste something? In your mouth, most people. Most people believe that taste is yeah. all down to the tongue, but that's not true, is exactly. it? Not, not at all. I mean, our tongue can detect basically five different sensations. Salt, sour, sweet, bitter, and, of course, umami, which most people don't know what it is. Um, those are the five basic senses we've got in our mouth, and they really are pretty crude. They can't distinguish very much at all. Then they give signals to our brain. As you're eating, of course, 
when you chew, some of the odor, some of the molecules in your mouth go up the back of your nose and you breathe them out. It actually is mostly on the breathing out that you detect them. And the odd nose, as we've already heard, has hundreds of different sensors in there and re can recognise millions of different molecules. And that nose is where most of the information that goes back to your brain comes from. So there is so truth in the claim, Pete, that if you hold your nose when you're eating something you don't like, for me it used to be Brussels sprouts, for example, yeah. you should be able to abolish the rather unpleasant taste. You will change it. Of course, with Brussels sprouts, you've got that sour taste if they've been overcooked, which is an acidic taste which will still be in the mouth because it's coming from the tongue. Um, but it's not just your tongue and your nose. You also taste with your eyes and your hands <laughs> and your ears. Just drumming up all sorts of thoughts, shoveling food into my Everything. eyes. It's a kind of if nine you, and a half weeks. Yep. Well, now, if you yeah. think about it, when, you look, when you're eating something, you see it first, and the very first thing you do is look at it and you say, what am I expecting? An expectation is set up. Um, and if you don't see it or you see something unexpected, you won't work. You, your brain won't work right. A good example of that is if you give professional wine tasters a red wine to taste and a white wine to taste, they will tell you that they're different. But if the red wine is just the same white wine with food colouring added, they still won't recognise them as the same wine. So, because they expect something different. Well, a lot of people for Valentine's Day will be giving each other chocolates and stuff, so mm. why, why is chocolate the ultimate food? Why does chocolate taste so good? Well, of course, chocolate's got combi a combination of two of the most basic things that we really like, that sugar and fat. And of course, that's probably built into us from evolutionary times and you know, good old days before we could go and get food from the supermarket um, man was a hunter or a gatherer whatever and if you could get sugar it was great because you can go and chase the wildebeest and bring home the, uh, the bacon or whatever it will be or if you could get fat you could lay down some store of energy for the future those were really important things to get as much as you could of so put them together in something and that makes it really good so just sugar and fat alone is one reason for liking it got a question uh, that's been sent in by uh, Lindsay Little, Pete, and she says, I love, I love your podcast, The Naked Scientist. Uh, the Naked Scientist is a very interesting thing to listen to, but I have a question. Why does milk and orange juice, or orange juice and toothpaste, taste so disgusting together? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> um, why things taste disgusting together, really, um, is largely because they have nothing in common. Um, but they're also, you, we might think that are acid cutting through and so on, to make a difference on the tongue. But largely it's because you've got your tongue and your nose set up for some set of receptors, and then you give them a jarring set. It's like playing a jarring chord on the piano. It tastes, com tastes completely wrong. On the other hand, if you play something that's smooth and things go together, they work really well. So foods that have molecules in common tend to taste very good together. Have people built sort of artificial systems so that you can work out what the sort of taste profile of a particular substance is and then, for instance, predict what it will go well with? Uh, well, to say they've built them is, is complicated. People, there are lots of people out there um, in various research institutions and food companies, uh, flavour companies, who are very concerned with knowing what the main flavour molecules in anything actually are. Um, so far in coffee, for example, over a thousand different molecules have identified that contribute to the taste of coffee. Um, but even if you know what they all are, knowing which the important ones are is quite difficult because you can feed different people, different combinations of them, and ask them whether they taste it or they don't taste it, or get the flavour, and different people will actually give you different answers. Um, so it's not as simple as that. But yes, people have done research on it, and when you've done it and you identify the key molecules, maybe the, the half a dozen most important ones or so, then if you look at profiles, you can start to suggest that something will go well with something else. So um, what, 
what are particularly romantic tastes? And is, is there something like that, some, something that's very sensual? I think the sensual tastes are things which, of course, coat the mouth and give a nice warm feeling. That chocolate's really great for that because it warms the mouth and you put it in, it cools the mouth when you put it in because it melts the fat in the chocolate and it coats the mouth. That's good. Um, other ones are things which are very, very crisp and clean that sort of clean the palate. Um, things Champagne. like caviar. <laughs> Champagne, excellent, yes. I mean, all these sort of things which people tend to like as being very special foods. And also, if they're expensive and unusual, they are better because you think you're being treated to something rather important. Do you think there's a day coming when we might be able to go to the supermarket and someone will say you could mix this with this because the taste profile of that looks like it'll map onto the taste profile of that and you can get a really bizarre combo, but it tastes absolutely great. I mean, this is the basis of molecular gastronomy, isn't it? Well, it's it's something that some people call molecular gastronomy, yes, and 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 some chefs actually are doing exactly that. But I think to do it in a supermarket would be very boring, wouldn't it, really? I mean, you... (laughs) We'll leave it to Heston Heston Blumenthal. What what do you like on tongue rolling there, um... Tongue rolling? <laughs> yeah, I've got an email here from Singapore. <laughs> this is from uh, uh, Kai Kantan, who's in Singapore, and he says, Hi, this is Kai from Singapore, somewhere exotic in the Far East. Keep up the good work on the podcast. Um, says here, secondary school students take biology, and, uh, and they know in their courses that the allele, the gene, for tongue rolling is dominant, as claimed by many textbooks. However, in a recent project which required me to construct a family pedigree, I found this was not the case. Both my parents could not roll their tongues, but my brother and I could. This gene appears to be recessive in my family, as my youngest brother could not roll his tongue as well, and I come from a family of five. My teacher couldn't provide me with an answer, so I wondered if you could. Since you're an expert on taste and tongues and things, I thought you might be able to help us out with this one. Not not a chance at all of helping on that, I'm afraid. I have no idea how to answer that one. Maybe they should find out if the milkman can roll his tongue. (laughs) Peter, thanks very much for joining us. Stay on the line just in case um, we have any questions for you. Okay. You are listening to The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Cat. We're live on BBC Local Radio right around the Eastern Counties. We're talking the science of smell, taste and Cupid's chemistry this evening because it is Valentine's Day this week. And if you have a question for us, 08459 25 2000 or you can email me chris at nakedscientist.com. We have here in the studio with us Peter Brennan, who's an expert on how the nose works and how smell works and that kind of thing. And he's quite happy to take your questions too. As I say, 08459 25 2000 and up for grabs we have 20 quid's worth of Wiggly Wigglers vouchers if you'd like to have a go at our competition. Science fact or science fiction. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. Into the last 10 minutes of the show, we want your calls. Phone us now, 08459 252000. What do you think about smells? What do you think about the best way to seduce someone with your smell? And I wanted to ask Peter in the studio. Um, thinking about pheromones and the sort of things we've been talking about, if we discover a human pheromone, is it going to smell like sweaty armpits? Well, um, the <laughs> underarm secretions, uh, one of their main roles is probably pheromonal for this chemical communication role um, because we have lots of glands that produce particularly um, smelly compounds under our arms. Um, all of these hairs under our arms are actually acting as wicks, sort of, drawing them out, releasing them into the air, large surface area and all that. Um, and so it might well smell like horrible, sweaty underarm, which I guess some people might find attractive. Um, maybe if they don't have a sense of smell, they might. And what about the role of smell in mother and baby bonding? I remember reading a paper about um, mice, I think it was, that's, that part of their brain that's evolved in smell gets bigger when a female mouse is pregnant. Um, is that the same case in humans? 
Um, I don't know about the brain getting bigger, but certainly smell does play a role. Um, if you take newborn babies, then uh, just the day after they're born, you can present them on one side of their head with uh, breast pads from their mother, on the other side of the head with breast pads from um, another mother of the, uh, in the same hospital, and they'll turn their head towards the breast pad of their mother, they'll orient towards it. So, so they almost certainly learn to recognise yeah, from a very early age. That's right, and, and they may well be doing this either from uh, compounds in the mother's milk or in the uterus as they've been developing. Got a question here from Stefan, who's in Chicago for you, Peter. He said, no, it sounds a bit crude. Um, we're wondering, how come farts seem to smell a bit worse and linger longer when we're in the shower? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. I guess that it's something to do with the, um, the enclosed environment within a shower. Uh, there's less sort of airflow to disperse the odour, etc., etc. But whatever happens, you will adapt and get used to the odour, habituate to it. The olfactory system is very good at that. How does that actually work? Because that was actually going to be my, my springboard, and you walked beautifully into it, uh, so to speak, because that actually happens with that kind of smell as well, doesn't it? But how does the nose get used to smells? Because that is a characteristic of the, yes. way, of, of the nervous system and the way it works, isn't it? And it's particularly important for the sense of smell, because... There are molecules in the air all around us, given off by the carpets, the furniture, the walls, other people, and yet um, we have to get used to them to then be able to respond to new odours that come in from the cup of coffee or the strawberries or whatever. And it's actually at some connections between the nerve cells in our brain, um, between the first and second stages of processing, which actually... Uh, get reduced in their efficiency and therefore they don't transmit the signal as efficiently um, after they've been stimulated for a certain amount of time. I've got a quick question from Elaine, Peter. Uh, she actually is in the States and she says, I'm wondering if you, can, if you can tell me whether you think my male dog might be sensitive to my menstrual cycle and when I'm ovulating, I've bought a puppy and it gets very, and he got very irritable when I was at a certain stage of my cycle and when I was ovulating he kept biting me. Um, now, I'm, now I'm over my period, he's calmed down a lot. Um, do you think that this might be related? I think that's highly likely. Uh, dogs have a fantastic sense of smell. They've got an enormous uh, amount of surface area of their nose that's taken up with these um, cells that respond to smells. And that's why dogs are used for tracking um, people's odours, for finding explosives at airports, and for hunting out victims of avalanches, which they can sniff out under the snow. Um, and so... The changes in the odour of someone which will happen because of the hormonal changes during the menstrual cycle, um, the dogs will be much more sensitive to those than humans will. Trevor's in Essex. Good evening, Trevor. Good evening. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you're live on The Naked Scientist. What would you like to know? Um, it was regarding the, the fist toast that uh, your chap mentioned regarding uh, those that uh, your tongue can distinguish. Ah, oh, the taste, uh, yeah. Or Marley. Yeah. What, what, what would you like to know about it? It, it was the fifth one that uh, he said that most people wouldn't be aware of, actually. It's, uh, everybody knows the four. Yeah. The fifth one I was curious about, he mentioned, uh, I can't exactly remember that. Ah, uh, he's word. referring to umami. Pete? Yes, hello. Tell, tell us about umami. Well, umami has been known for a very long time in the East, and that's why it's called umami, because the Japanese recognise it. It's only in the last well, 15 or 20 years that it's really been recognised in the West as well. Umami is the sense that, that is set, triggered by monosodium glutamate. Um, I'm sure you all know, know what that is. It's the stuff that's in um, the, the, the soy sauce. Chinese restaurants. Chinese restaurants, yeah. yeah. But most people don't realise what it really is. It's actually very common 
it's in tomato puree and it's in uh, parmesan cheese and, and it imparts a kind of meaty flavor a, a yeah. full-bodied flavor to, to things but to, to coach the mouth really yeah does that help you out trevor it does thanks do you want to have a quick go at the quiz Sure. Uh, an otoscope is an instrument used by doctors for looking into your throat. Is that science fact or science fiction? Oh, sounds like a fact. No, an otoscope is actually used to look into your ears to see your eardrums, not down your throat. Yeah. Next question, Trevor. A baby born breech is coming out feet first. Is that science fact or science fiction? Feet first, uh, fiction. No, breech babies do come out feet first as opposed to the normal head first way. So, uh, bad luck. Uh, not yet to score, Trevor. But okay. thanks for a good question anyway. Uh, good to have you on the programme. Thanks a lot. We've got about uh, three minutes left of the Naked Scientists here on local radio around the eastern counties. If you want to give us a call, 08459 Dr Chris and Dr Cat here with you, joined in the studio by Peter Brenham. And also in Bristol, we have Peter Barham, who's an expert on how things taste. So we'll be catching up with them in just a couple of seconds. Cat, We've had an email right in here from Steve in Harwich, and he's emailed us at chris at nakedscientist.com. He says, I'm sending this email to ask, when someone meets someone else, is there a special hidden smell that couples have between them? And so if you were then to split up and met someone else, that new couple, you would have that same kind of chemistry. Um, you know, so that's how you know that a person is for you, because you've got matching chemistry. And um, Peter, is there um, any basis to this? There's possibly a bit of basis to it, yes. Um, there has been some evidence from um, quite special populations of uh, Hutterites, they're called, in the United States, that uh, the family trees aren't decided by a sort of random assortment of pairings, that they are actually biased by genetic identity. And this could actually be due to the sense of smell. I've got a quick uh, email here from Marlena. Uh, Marlena von Kazmier, it says, Peter. And she says, I'm a new listener from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I have a question for you. Why do we get cravings for certain foods, especially when, uh, why are there certain foods we'd, we'd not normally like to eat? Uh, my friend's pregnant and she now wants to eat the strangest of things. What do you think? Um, I think that that's probably because uh, when you're pregnant, then uh, there's a lot of um, pressure on trying to get the right sort of nutrients and the right balance of nutrients. And therefore, uh, that might have an effect to give you these cravings so you're getting the right things your body needs. OK, well, we're pretty much out of time for this week. I want to spend the last couple of moments saying very big thank you to the people who've helped us out on tonight's show. From Bristol, Peter Brennan. Uh, or the, or the other person in Bristol, the other Peter B, Peter Barham, thank you very much to him. In the studio, Kat Arney and our wonderful team here at The Naked Scientist, Anna Lacey, we have Holly Barclay and Petro Minch. Thank you all very much for helping us to make tonight's show a big success. Next week, I shall actually be in America at the American Association for the Advancement of Science Festival, and I shall be reporting to you live from there. I'll leave you in the capable hands of Kat, who will be here with Sarah and Mandy to talk about the science of how plants give us the next generation of drugs. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live 
and move to the UK.